0: Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham omnibus sport review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about Gaza. Paul Gascoigne, the former England midfielder. To me Paul Gascoigne is the magical negro of English football. The magical negro is, to define it, is a supporting stock character in American film and fiction. It's a African-American character, usually male but sometimes female, predominantly male, and in some ways is considered outwardly or inwardly disabled. They're selfless, they're self-sacrificing and they bring wisdom and insight and help to the main white character. And they usually have a a magical power. Um, A critic described it, a film critic described it as, Rather vaguely defined, but not the sort of thing one typically encounters. And to me, that's what Paul Gascoigne is in the, the element of selflessness. You know, he brings just immense joy and happiness to England fans, especially in Italian 90. He helped the public fall back in love with football after all of the disasters and violence of the 1980s. You finally had Italian 90 England weren't expected to do anything. And they go, they're a World Cup penalty shootout away from the final. The idea of bringing wisdom, help, and insight in that England were always known as being, you know, of that kind of era, was sort of staid, stodgy England. And they were never able to appreciate or utilise maverick talent, you know, Glenn Hoddles, Dan Bowles. And then Gascoigne comes along and. It's well known that Bobby Robson, the manager, wasn't 100% sure of taking him to Italia 90. Until they had this friendly at Wembley against Czechoslovakia. And he just has a wonder game. And at that point, that's when they decide they just have to take him. And then he sort of, you know, you know burst into the first team. And really, to sum up Paul Gascoigne's extraordinary gifts, it really is like a magical power. You know, and one of the, the sort of tropes of the magical Negroes is that they, they come out of nowhere. And in many ways, him coming out of Newcastle is that. It is socially disadvantaged. You, you have the sort of stereotype of the, the Geordie lad as pissed up wearing a Newcastle replica shirt with a bottle of Newcastle you know, brown ale and then you have the element of self sacrifice you know the the yellow card against west germany in italian 90 so in the semi final so he gets a, a yellow card he had a t- yellow card earlier in the tournament it means he misses the final and you get the the emotion pours out of him you, you get tears he carries on playing in the game tries his best even though he knows he's not going to the final he tries to get the team there you know you then have the, sort of the wider sense of, you know, his drink fuel decline after his, you know, the powers, the, the the genius football. Once that fades, you know, you have the inability of his, you know, teammates. You know, Gary Mabbott tried to help. Gary Lineker's tried to help. You know, the the man at his managers. You know, Bobby Robson, Walter Smith, Terry Venables to save him, or even sort of English society as a whole. You know sort of reminiscent of the Green Mile, it's one of the sort of most popular and famous films with the the magical Negro as a character. You have the uh, legend of of Bagavance. And there's also the sense that in some ways he's you know, the passivity with which Paul Gascoigne has really accepted his fate. Yeah, he's not blamed the press, he's not blamed the public, all of the, the the fame for, you know, his problems. And then what we've done once he sort of stopped once his England career was finished, sort of in the late nineties, in the early two thousands, we then recast Gazza as a cautionary tale, and, and this really coincided with the the rise of Wayne Rooney, because it mirrored so many elements of the, the Gazza backstory, you know, the teenage prodigy, white northern class, working class background. He had weight issues. There was the pressures of fame. There was the England, ex English expectation. You know the ghosts of '66, and with you know Wayne Rooney's first couple of sort of front page missteps. And this is where the question really lies: Was this a purely altruistic desire of the the press and the sporting public? To avoid the, the guilt of implied responsibility. In other words, were we partially to blame for what happened to Paul Gascoigne after his football career ended? With the, the alcohol, the, the drugs, the mental health problems, you know, the, the very public disintegration of, of his life. Or was it really just simply a desire to, to maximise the physical gifts and talent that Wayne Rooney had? You know, so Because it benefited at club level, that's Manchester United, the, the biggest club in the country. And really casting Rooney as the final piece of the golden generation. We had the defenders in Ferdinand, we had the midfielders with Beckham, Gerrard, Lampard, you had Michael Oren. You just needed another sort of attacking player to really finish the job off. And then Wayne Rooney came. And I suppose there's also an element of, an element of stereotypes. We just immediately thought, ah, Wayne Rooney's northern, similar things to Gaza. As a result, that that'll be the same. He'll end up the same. And, well, thankfully, although Wayne Rooney has issues, just like every single one of us has issues, I I don't think he's ever going to be in the same sort of position as, you know, Paul Gascoigne. But there was also an element of a cottage industry within the media, you know, about with documentaries, with books, with long form articles, all kind of seeking to explain Gaza, trying to, you know, his background childhood traumas. I mean, one of them was that when he was a young boy, he saw his best friend get run over right in front of him and sociologically about, you know, the the issues with, you know, working class drinking in Newcastle and so on. So not only is he in some sense the the you know, with the the magical negro is, is deeply troubling. Yeah you, know, you can enjoy the legend of Bagavanch, of you can enjoy the Green Mile, but the, the concept itself is deeply troubling. And Gaza in many ways is also the magical negro of Toxic masculinity. What is the most famous images. Of Paul Gascoigne. You've got two photos. That immediately spring to mind. You have the photo. Of Vinnie Jones of Wimbledon. Grabbing Paul Gascoigne. By the balls. It's sexual assault. Maybe not back in the 1980s. But now. If you were to do that on on a football field. You would get in. Huge trouble. If you did it on the street, you would get into amazingly large amounts of trouble. I mean, the only place where you could probably get away with it is the rugby field, where Joe Marler did it for England to a Welsh player during the England-Wales Six Nations game just before the lockdown. But they tr- People try in rugby try to sort of play it off as a, a harmless prank, even in the modern age. And I think the point is is almost it was as if it's fine as long as you're a character. As long as you're a bit eccentric, as long as you've got a bit of a media persona that you can back that up with. If that had just been a random substitute or someone who, you know, a back row player who people didn't know by, you know, hair, by look or by name, you'd have probably gotten an Amazing amount of trouble. So sort of the classic example is all of the behaviour that is associated with the Wimbledon crazy gang of the 80s and 90s. The idea is that you join, you turn up in your suit, and then they would just burn your suit. Because that would somehow bring everything together and would help build you know, team morale. You know, it's very much, if you look at it, Vinnie Jones parlayed his you know Premier League hard man Wimbledon image and managed to turn it into a hollywood acting career you know it's an era defining photo in that regards and it very much plays into the the english psyche of toughness it's overtly macho but it's also deeply suspicious of talent it's the george orwell quote that i love it's England is really the only place where being too clever by half would be considered an insult. So if you see actual highlights of the game itself where the, you know, the ball grabbing incident comes from, is that Paul Gascoigne was running rings around some of those Wimbledon players. And so as a result, it's not only is it trying to, you know, intimidate the opposition, it's also saying you're too good. And the only way we can stop you is not by tactics, not by marking, not by effort, is by just brute force. And really the second sort of famous image is that of the dentist chair celebration at Wembley. So the context for this is it's England versus Scotland, Euro 96, England are the host nation. They need to get a result. They've drawn their first game against Switzerland. Their last game is against a very talented Dutch side. This is going to be the make or break game. They're 1-0 up. They give away a late penalty. The Scots have you know, come back in the second half. Scotland miss the penalty. England go straight down the other end. And the ball falls to Paul Gascoigne. And he flicks over the head of Scott, Colin Hendry. And it in terms of a narrative arc, the actual truth of it was that Gasser was seconds away from being substituted and hadn't made much of an impact. But in this... Pure moment is that you've had the relief of David Seaman saving from Gary McAllister. You now have Paul Gascoigne, the England hero, legend, one of the best players to ever play for England, who's currently playing up in Scotland for Rangers. And you have Colin Hendry, who looks like he is out of central casting for Braveheart. He looks like the archetypal. He's over six foot, he's got blonde hair, you rugged. Looks tough, looks like he's built out of flint and stone. And Gazza flicks it over his head and then runs around him and volleys it. Just smashes it past Andy Gorham. So it's gone from potentially England being one all with the Scots having all of the momentum. It's now 2-0, it's game over. At this point, England has finally grasped hold of this team and said, We love you, you've got footballs coming home. Everything then from that summer has sort of been built on that moment, and what happened was prior to the tournament, England had a load of friendlies because they'd qualified automatically as hosts. You know, Terry Venables had used lots of different lineups, lots of different players, so there hadn't been any kind of continuity. So the results were a bit patchy. Some of the opposition, some were good, some were bad. There was no real momentum or expectation. England hadn't qualified for the World Cup in nineteen ninety four. Just before the tournament, they go out to play a couple of rinky-dink friendlies again in Hong Kong, and naturally they have trained and trained. The two, you know, Hong Kong sort of um, friendlies don't go brilliantly well. But on the sort of last next to the last night of the trip. It's Gaz's twenty ninth birthday, and Terry Venable's lets them out in Hong Kong, but he sort of covers himself and things getting too rowdy by getting the assistant Brian Robson to, to join them as well, just to kind of be a, a, a the adult in the room. The problem really starts with the nickname that Brian Robson had during his. Uh, football career was hollow legs because apparently he could drink so much they just assumed his legs were hollow and that's where all the alcohol went. So they go to several bars and they end up in this um, sort of bar slash nightclub and there's the dentist chair. So you get in the chair, you lean back, and basically people free pour spirits down you. So they get wildly drunk, their shirts are all ripped, and there's naturally you know a photographer just outside the bar takes a load of photos. And the England team get hammered for it. You know, just get absolutely pilloried in the press. They're already now under a lot more pressure. And that pressure has now just been ratcheted up. And on the flight home, there's a bit of a situation. And a bit of the plane gets damaged. So it's even worse. The press has just jumped all over them. And so... If you had all this pressure and then Gazza, after scoring this wonder goal, lays down on the turf at Wembley. 80,000 people and all of the England players get their um, water bottles and then start spraying it in his mouth like it's the dentist chair. You know, in some ways it's unprofessional, it's unapologetic, it's a celebration of binge drinking and lads culture and boys will be boys. And in some ways it's brilliant and funny and... People love it, but there's there's a darker undertone to it. It's the idea of sort of hiding your feelings away with booze. You know, some of the worst elements of 90s sort of lad culture you have, you know, lads magazines, you know, binge drinking, you know, Club 1830, you know, booze cruises, going on holiday and just getting tanked up and getting into trouble. And then it sort of fits into this pattern of reckless pranks that gather is legendary for. I I you know I you could literally I could do a 3 hour podcast on Paul Gascoigne banter stories alone. I am only going to sort of pick out two. That I think really most explain him. And there's one when he's at Spurs and it's before the East Stand was redeveloped. So the East Stand had been built in the late 30s and on top of the roof was a, a press box. Now for years and this is of late 80s for years that press box had been off-limits. The floorboards were rotten, it was just, you didn't go there, it was a death trap. Now one day, Gazza is at White Hart Lane, shooting pigeons with an air rifle, which is strange, but that's what he was doing, and so he decides to get a better vantage point to go into this off-limits press box on top of the stand roof. And as he's shooting the pigeons, one of the actual um, BB darts that he uses actually clinkets off of the um, cockerel on the top of the west stand. And so when the new stadium was built, they um, basically used a 3D printer to create a bigger version of the uh, west stand and east stand cockerel to put on the uh, south stand. And so it was in every single way, like the weather-beaten one, there was dinks in it, and apparently one of the dinks is basically one of his errant BBs that he missed the pigeon and hit the actual um, cockerel. The floorboard gives out, and Gazza falls 20, 30 feet onto the top tier of the east stand, onto the seats below. Now, that could have killed him. That could have broken his leg. He could have been paralysed. He could have been killed. It was an insanely reckless thing to do. But luckily, he seemed to basically bounce up without a scratch. It was a, a miracle. And there's another time when he's at Spurs, and there's a... Um, groundsman who's got a van with a um, one of those sort of steps up onto the roof kind of like a mini ladder and gazza manages to persuade the um, garden the um, groundsman to go onto the roof i think he's put like some of his equipment up there and as the the old boy i think he's in his 50s 60s the way how gary Lineker tells the story is that gazza then runs round jumps into the van and just pulls off Drives off with the groundsman on the roof, now holding on to this, like, you know, attached ladder for dear life, pretty much looking like Superman. So he drives him all around Mill Hill, where Spurs, training ground was at the time, at high speed, going round roundabouts, and eventually brings him back into the, the car park. The guy's managed to hold on for his life for this sort of two, three, I imagine terrifying minutes. All the players are sort of laughing, but in a kind of shocked way. And Terry Venables, the manager, comes out and says, oh, kind of, what's going on here? Sort of takes a look, kind of assesses what, assumes, guesses what's kind of happened, that Garrett, that uh, Gaz has done something, and says, I don't want to know about this, do I, lads? They nod, and he wanders off. The thing is, he, he could have killed this guy. He could have, you know, if he'd fallen off, and he could have been run over. You could have, you could have ended up, his career could have been ruined by a fifteen-year prison sentence, you know, even even on the field, you you have the sort of reckless tackles in the World Cup nineteen ninety. The two tackles he got booked for were reckless. They weren't particularly well-timed challenges. They were the, just the sort of challenges that would get you booked. You know, he should have been red-carded in the ninety-one FA Cup final. You know, the first challenge was bad. You know, and the ref because he's pumped up. I mean, everyone knew. Gazza in the 91 Cup final was just bouncing off the wall in the tunnel. He was just too amped up and they're trying to calm him down. He could have got a straight red. The second one is an even worse challenge. Could have ended Gary Charles, the player he tackles, career. In the end, he only smashes his Omni up and is, it's out for a year. Again, wasn't sent off and really probably got away with it more than anything partly due to fame partly because people loved Gazza. and they, he was so emotive you just knew what he was feeling and thinking at any any given moment and it it's really part of a, set against a, a backdrop of a training ground culture that was just soaked in testosterone it was addled with it it was hierarchical there was Elements of bullying younger players. There's a constant need to toughen people up. You had banter. You had marathon drinking sessions to you know, bond teams together. And the key point really has to be that... Gaza's drinking was really increasingly out of place as the 90s wore on. You know, Ferguson you know, had, damaged, had destroyed a drinking culture... At, old, at Manchester United in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. He got the players who were drinkers and got them out of the club. You know, you have the same thing with Wenger at Arsenal a bit further on into the 90s. English football and, and football in general, but specifically English football and drinking, was becoming more professional. You had Tony Adams enter rehab and going into recovery. You also had, a, in some ways, some of it. Some of the see, some of the legend of Gaza was, I think, in many ways, media created. There's a famous um, moment where a um, Norwegian television crew went up to to Gaza as he was just warming up for a game, and says, um, "Do you have anything to say to Norway?" And his response was, "Fuck off, Norway." The obvious point is is that the the Norwegian camera crew knew what they were looking for. They were looking for Gaza to do or say something, uh, and he played up to that. There's always a sense in, in sport that there's exceptions, and that talent will always kind of win out in those situations. There's a famous one at Lazio, when he was playing out in Italy in the early 90s, where um, I think Lazio had forbidden any of their players to do media interviews. I think they were having a bit of a barney with the local press. And um, so the press go up and ask all these sort of individual to these Lazio players in the line. And they get to Gaza. Everyone else has been just stone silent, hasn't said a word. And then Gaza just burps into the microphone. I think if you take the totality of all of these stories, I, I don't see him as being malicious, but it's more unchained. You know, he was beloved by teammates, but... You didn't. Again, you didn't really have a choice with Paul Gascoigne, you had to take him as, at his behaviour, he wasn't going to change it in any way, and I think he was so irrepressible in many ways that that you know, was fine with many people and he was so talented and generally you know, such an interesting character that people were willing to you know, forgive him anything. But undoubtedly there is a dark side to Paul Gascoigne and Gaza. In many ways, by the sort of late after Euro ninety six, his talent in a way became justificatory. In other words, he was in his late twenties and had had broken legs. He had a you know, huge knee injury in the early part of the nineties, and he was wasn't quite that same player. Maybe Euro ninety six was, you know. A sort of comeback to form but eventually he was more based on his fame his place in the England side and the idea that Gazza had this just brilliant talent would allow him anything because that had always somehow worked in the past so in the run-up to World Cup 98 and, and people knew that that would be Paul Gascoigne's last chance at a world Cup so he'd be 31 just before the tournament started. So really, theoretically, should have been at his peak. And Glenn Hoddle, the manager, has said, cut down on the late-night drinking. Because Gazza was always on the verge of being heavy. He was heavy at Newcastle. He had moments at Spurs, moments at Lazio. His weight would go up and down. And it was you know, public knowledge that he was quite a big drinker at this point. And yet, he then proceeds to have several public late-night benders ending with 3am kebabs with his celebrity friends, celebrity pals. Obviously, when that happens in central London with three or four famous people in the West End drinking, you're going to find there's going to be cameras, there's going to be people taking photos. And the thing is, you have to, again, look at the the context in that He'd hadn't been playing particularly well for England. He, you know his the last great moment for Paul Gascoigne is ninety seven England versus Italy in Rome, and England need a draw to qualify for the World Cup in ninety eight, and this is Stadio Olimpico in Rome. That's where he played for Lazio, and he had a pretty good game. England draw nil nil, and they got there. But since then, and he was playing for Middlesbrough, so kind of a mid-table, newly promoted outfit. So he, there was no sense, and his form, club form, hadn't been much to write home about. There'd been a couple of decent moments, but overall, it wasn't the strongest case. A lot of his case was based upon being Paul Gascoigne. You, you know, you had Paul Scholes coming through at Manchester United, had a fantastic nineteen ninety seven La Tournoir tournament. You had David Beckham. And this plays into a thing that we always, as fans and media, when we talk about Paul Gascoigne, we talk about his love for football. That, that Everything else, you know, there was problems in his personal life, with mental health, with drinking. But if you could just get him onto the training field and the games, everything, all of his problems would sort of melt away. And I think that's a lovely narrative, but I don't think that's 100% true. I think there was always that element that the talent and his joy for playing football also and being famous and having this beloved you know, national persona in being Gaza also allowed him to just be able to do a lot of what he wanted, eat what he want, drank what he want on the side. And that was fine up until turning 28, 29, nearing 30, where that't that, the, the balance, the scales weren't tipping in his favor. He was getting heavier, you know, his fitness was being affected. so he effectively still anybody else in that situation would have just said, okay, this is my last shot at this. It, he might not have even made Euro 2000. It was his last chance to go to a World Cup to make a difference, where all the greatest moments of his career, Italian 90, Euro 96, this was his last chance. So, you know, just spend a few months just focusing on the fitness, get yourself into the best shape of your life. After that, you know, you maybe you retire from international football, maybe, but just just for a short period of time, just be hyper-professional. But he didn't. He, he self-sabotaged. It's a lack of basic fitness and basic professionalism. And Glenn Hoddle, and this is, this is an interesting kind of um, aside, is that he tells Gaza that he's not made the England squad in his hotel room at a training camp with... Um, Kenny G playing in the background. I think the idea was that that would help soothe the situation. Doesn't work. Gazza goes nuts and really just trashes his hotel room. And the thing is, he'd been given multiple chances and opportunities. He'd been warned. He must have known that there was enough young England midfield talent that he wasn't guaranteed. That he really had to just show how much he wanted it. And by this point... He didn't. You know, he didn't give Glenn Hoddle much of a chance. You, know, you had the Kathy Pacific incident, which I alluded to earlier, and there's the, the, And I can't guarantee that this is one hundred percent true, but this is the rumor is, is that someone played a bit of a prank on Paul Gascoigne, on the flight back from Hong Kong, and while Gascoigne has done multiple, you know, hundreds of you know pranks he didn't necessarily like it being done on him and so as a result did the damage that the, the whole squad got blamed for but i think the 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 assumption is that he was the cause of it mm. you know you, you have stories of pub fights and brawls that have always just sort of followed him around in, in, in the background and this is uh, the difficult part of this podcast there is the harrowing testimony of his ex-wife Cheryl outlining numerous incidences of graphic domestic violence and bullying. And there were some photos that were all splashed over the front page of the newspapers in the the mid-90s when this came out. I think it happened at Glen Eagle's Hotel in Scotland. And largely speaking, they've been... These incidences have been sort of minimised and folded into the the wider narrative of him being troubled. I just, and this is then followed up with the the Moat incidents incident and, and the recent acquittal his recent acquittal for sexual assault on a train, and it paints Gascoigne as a a damaged man. Lost in a, a fog of drink and drugs, unable and unwilling to see that the world has, has fundamentally altered. You know He's still clinging desperately to that Gaza mystique, it's, which is a self-identity drenched in toxic masculinity. Believing that he could aid a violent murderer in a tense armed standoff with police based on the fact that they were casual acquaintances. Raoul Moat had been working as a bouncer in several Newcastle establishments that Gather had been in, so they kind of had some knowledge of each other, but they were not close friends. And so Raoul Moat had shot his ex-girlfriend, had killed her boyfriend, shot him, and had shot a police officer blinding, and then gone on to the run and was now holed up in the woods, armed... And dangerous. And Gascoigne, after multiple drinks, multiple lines of coke, arrives on the scene late at night with a four-pack, a chicken, a fishing rod, pleading to be let close to Ralmo so that he could talk him down or sort this situation out. At which point, the police advise him to, to go home. And the, the recent case where he was acquitted is that reportedly a dishevelled, drunk Gascoigne sitting on a train, covered with food around his mouth, with some cans at his feet, talking and sitting next to a woman. And apparently he t- his side of the story, as reported in the press, was that um, he'd been taking photos with people on the train and that somebody had said to this woman, oh, she's fat and ugly. And so Gaza in knight in shining armour, decided to cheer this woman up by giving her a kiss on the cheek, unsolicited. yet yeah, yeah, he was found not guilty by a jury. It's still wildly inappropriate behaviour. You know, his fame and personal brand is diminishing to the point that the woman, the victim had absolutely no idea who who this was. She didn't realize this was England, Ex England International and you know, national icon and national legend Paul Gascoigne. To her it was a man in his early fifties in a disheveled, drunken state, giving her a kiss on the cheek, unsolicited. It's a difficult debate because it's a fine line in in, in many cases with with sporting genius between that and madness and damaging behaviors often we sort of find out at the biography stage what it was like behind the scenes you know, i think one of the best sort of the classic examples was you know really when sort of ted williams's family you know, he's a fantastic baseball player you know, genius hitter the person who said i want to walk down the street and then people will say there goes the greatest hitter of all time and yet, what they were saying was is that because of his you know, behavior, he was very ornery character. He could be quite difficult, and he was very set in his ways and you know, determined, and to the point of just pure belligerence. That what they were saying is is that really you you think you're cheering this hitting genius? You're really cheering someone's mental illness. That yes, just because it's channeled into. To hitting but you're effectively deifying a damaged individual you know, the same thing about you know michael jordan's you know, pathological desire to win and how he would you know punch teammates in the face the famous story that he punched steve kerr who's now you know coach of the golden state warriors in the face what could he once he'd come back from playing minor league baseball for a year because standards had dropped So there's no easy answer for how to factor in mental health issues when we look back on our sporting heroes. You know, Paul Gascoigne was undoubtedly one of the most talented, inspired English football players of all time. Watching, you know, watching his videos this morning when I was preparing for this podcast, you see everything. You see fantastic free kicks, you see mesmerizing dribbles. You see great passes, you see lung-bursting runs, you see fantastic finishes, good headers, great movement, just everything. But also in just such a a different way. A gaza dribble, I don't think you can ever... It's unique, in the sense that he sort of swerves around people. It's never A to B, it's A to C, via D, stopping off at B and ending up at A, but still... Finding space it's incredible to watch, but he's also a domestic abuser, he's an alcoholic, he's had issues with drugs, he's had various mental health issues, and stem from childhood problems onwards. There's a manicness about Gaza when you watch the the, the footage of him when you read about how he was around his teammates. There are stories when he'd sort of... Uh, Italian 90, he'd have so much energy, he would end up training. He'd end up doing hours of laps in the swimming pool. Bobby Robson was almost having to stop him trying to exercise. He'd then play tennis against one player, two players, three players. He was once at one point playing against an American couple on holiday in the, the, the tennis courts. There are stories about before the you know, semi-finals and on the Spurs' cup run he'd play four or five hours worth of squash the night before with various different players. Gaza brought joy to millions of people. But I would hold no issue with those who, looking back on it now retrospectively, seem as being emblematic of damaging patriarchy. Where... Victims are ignored or sidelined if the aggressor wields power and status within society. Where negative and destructive behaviours are normalised or even celebrated if the end product is an England victory. I I think there is some merit in in seeking to understand the depths and and scars that mental health issues leave. And the difficulties in trying to overcome these demons, these illnesses, in a pressurised performance environment. All in the sort of unrelenting glare of the ravenous national media and the expectation of the fans. You know, the, the era that Paul Gascoigne played in was not one where mental health was understood fully. Not by the players, the manager, the media, all the fans. It was just a tough it out. You know, do what you need to do. If you have a problem, be a man about it. Have some drinks. Is that kind of toughness? That kind of. And for me, I suppose the best way that there should be really, a, in my mind, there should be a Gaza film. And I think it should be one film, but in really two parts. And I think the first one should be, the first part of this film should be an unreliable, unreliable narrator. And it shows you the highs. So, Italian 90. You know, the tears, the great moments. You know, you can have Euro 96, the great years at Rangers. You know, the scoring a fantastic free kick against Arsenal in the, the first ever FA Cup semi-final played at, at Wembley. Even even the back half of his career, after he sort of retires from football, he spends a few months out in, in China. You know, he goes on a sold-out stage tour. And you could have all of that, because all of it is fundamentally true, all of the love that people had for him. You know, whenever Gazza signed for someone, thousands of people would turn up whether that be in Scotland whether that be in Middlesbrough whether that be in Italy you know when he was out playing in in Rome for Lazio all of that all of it is true all of the love all of the great moments it's all fundamentally true but if you took it from the unreliable narrator's perspective if you just looked at it as you know, without any depth to it and then I think the second half should actually show the downfall and the truth behind all of the glory. The, the violence, the the problems, the, the bulimia, the the pressures, the, the alcohol. All of the mistakes that were made. And all of the problems they have and the complexities that you wouldn't see in the first half where it's just the glory bits. And really let the viewer at the end of the film decide what to make of it. And I think to really... If you're going to, I think understand these sort of damaged sporting heroes, I think the the best two people to compare Gascoigne to would probably be, to my mind, would be George Best, that great Manchester United Northern Ireland football player, and Mickey Mantle, the legendary New York Yankees um, hitter, because they they those two are the, the classic examples of the destructive power of fame. Mixed with personal demons, so you you had George Best, you know, an icon of the you know, England in the swinging sixties. Went from being the European, yeah, you know, the first English team to win the European Cup at Wembley in nineteen sixty eight, beating Benfica. He was a brilliant player. He was an icon. He was beloved, and then by the you know eighties, he's in a prison cell. But the thing is, is that it's George Best spending a few months in prison isn't me on you spending a few months in a prison cell. George Best was still a hero. George Best was probably a hero to quite a few people in the prison. There were probably prison guards that were Man United fans, probably because of George Best. It's not the same. It's not you or I go to prison. There's nothing positive. It's terrifying. It's you know the the ramifications last for. Years afterwards, in terms of employment, in terms of your relationship with your friends and family, your own personal psychology, George Best came out of prison still as popular as he was before he went inside. Yes, it was embarrassing, but it never damaged his you know, career in any meaningful way. You know, there, there, with Best and Gaza, there is credible allegations of domestic violence against them. Need, at no point did it greatly diminish their public standing or position as football heroes. You know there was a huge amount of controversy when George Best who had drank an absolutely, you know, a huge amount of alcohol, and was just known for being you know probably the most like well, one point probably one of the most famous alcoholics in the entire planet, and he received a liver transplant. And, you know, he had a steady, high-profile role on Soccer Saturday with Sky Sports. And in many ways, the celebrity rock bottom, due to its sort of high-profile nature, it intrinsically differs from what would happen if you or I had a fall from grace, which would, you know, joblessness, homelessness, isolation from friends and family, you know, drugs and alcohol problems... That's what a regular downfall. That means you can go from being a healthy, solid member of society to down and out ridiculously easily. You're only ever three or four steps away. But Gazza and George Best's high-profile travails didn't. In the end, Paul Gascoigne, even a a couple of years ago, was doing a stalled-out stage tour talking about his life. With Mickey I'll take Mickey Mantle for this moment is that he believed he was going to die young you know his father had died young there was a history of men in the family getting chronic illnesses in their 40s and dropping dead so he decided he was going to live his life one day at a time he was just going to go hell for leather he was going to drink he was going to party he was going have as many affairs. He was going to enjoy being a New York Yankee legend, and everything that came with it being America's hero in the fifties and sixties. He was tall. He was good looking. He was charismatic. He was a switch hitter. He could run. He could field. He could do everything. His team was successful. You know, he'd replaced DiMaggio, who you know, it would just been the long line of Yankee greats. You had Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Joe so DiMaggio. And now you had Mickey Mantle in the biggest market the you know the peak of New York City baseball domination and he was there and he was just everything that America post-war America wanted and but he had a horrible injury it's a, a story that basically it's DiMaggio was the center fielder who has the effectively in baseball it's minor detail is the center field is the one that has that calls. So if he wants to get that ball, the right fielder has to back off. And Mantle is a young player, just sort of come up and was establishing himself. Was told by the manager, that Joe's close to retirement. Try and get as many balls as possible. And so there's this fly ball that's hit into sort of right center, and Mantle comes tearing in, and you know say that I'm going to make the catch. And at the last minute, Dimaggio calls him off. So literally, to stop him running into DiMaggio, he has to stop. He gets his foot caught into a, uh, I think it's a grate that they use for like to water the um, field, and just obliterates his knee. And for the rest of his career, he played in fantastic amounts of pain. They used to call him the Mummy because of the amount of tape and the amount of hours that he would have to spend just to get ready for one game. And he sort of took this very stoically. But yeah, he did you know, drink, He there was you know, personal problems, and it was very much the, the idea of burden that he sort of had. You know, his father had been very... We would probably now call it abusive back in then, those days. It, he was just considered... Well, his son was going to be one of the greatest baseball players of all time, and Mutt Mantle, his dad, was going to make sure that was going to happen come what may. And so... With George Bess and Gaza, there's no sense of loss. You know, they've they've been publicly, you know, they've had all of their worst moments splashed all over the press, but they still have jobs, they still have the celebrity lifestyle, they're still they're not destitute on the streets. A Mantle, who was a you know, an alcoholic, he lost a son to liver cancer. And he, he's, he did, gave an interview. Eventually he became sober in the last few years of his life. And he basically said, I saw my sons more as drinking buddies than I did as a father-son relationship. And so he, I think three of his sons became alcoholics and one of them, uh, Mickey Jr., died of liver cancer. And he lost his best friend, uh, Billy Martin, who was again another one of his big drinking buddies, to a car crash involving alcohol. And effectively, Mickey Mantle, in that point, was really an unindicted co-conspirator in you know being there for both of these individuals' you know relation, poor relationship with alcohol. And so, in the end, he says, "You know, I wish I'd come become sober quicker, so that I could have helped Mickey Junior. and I could have helped Billy Martin get off the alcohol." That's true loss. No matter how many home runs Mickey Mantle hits. You can't possibly, you know, comprehend that kind of loss. It's just devastating, and that's what makes his, you know, it more poignant and meaningful. Whereby, yep, Gazzars tried to fight alcohol, so so did George Best, but there was no underlying loss for them. So as a result, there was nothing in it for them as much as it was for Mantle. And that's why you could probably argue that Mickey Mantle was the one who found peace at the end of his life more than, you know, at the moment, Gaza, and more to, you know, than George Best did. I mean, I think George Best had elements of peace, but not fully. And I think the point is is that with Best and Mantle, they were trapped by this seminal fame because they were so culturally valuable, not just as sports stars, but as cultural icons you know mantle is a you know poster boy for post-war America on the rise best as you know the swinging 60s in the UK both of them play for the largest and most popular teams in the most important sport and the burden of being a whole generations principal hero once you marry that with their personal demons it was potent now, how can anyone live up to the ex- expectations of millions of childhood fans now in adulthood? Upon meeting you, as you're deep into retirement, you know the pressure of living up to the Playboy reputation, to be this seminal, almost godlike figure. Mm. And for Mantle, the piece comes from eventually moving out of the. Clay. He moves to Greensboro, Georgia, and. For a lot of years, George Best lived in um, Surbiton in Surrey. And broadly speaking, these communities were supportive. They they you know in other words they they wouldn't bother him. They just treated him as a regular as regular individuals, regular locals. You know, there's the stories about when George Best was drinking in Surbiton pubs. What would happen is is that. Yeah, he, you'd basically have the regulars and they just knew to leave George Best alone they, you know, they'd say, oh, George how's it going he'd nod back and all the rest of it and then you'd get people who would let's say just walk into the pub and went, oh my god, there's George Best and some of them would would come up to the locals and say, oh, should I say something to George should I buy him a drink and the locals would be like, no just leave him alone you, you know, you've seen him, that's super duper he doesn't want to know and then you'd have these guys and they'd come up and George would be watching the football and they'd, come, they'd start trying to talk to him. And that's the point. If you've got thousands and thousands of people who all want to tell you their memories of you and how special you were, it, you can't keep all of these people happy. It, you just, it's just not possible. In the end, he just wanted to sit there and watch the football and have a quiet drink. So he would ignore them. And these people would sort of almost, sort of not quite storm off, but... They'd just be like, "Well, that wasn't the moment I was expecting. I was hoping to have this beautiful, brilliant moment with George Best." The problem is, two, three, four million people all wanted to have that moment with him. You know, there was one time when George Best was in the pub in Surbiton, and a beautiful woman comes and starts chatting George up, and you know, eventually she sort of goes away and says, "Oh, look, give me a call in a minute." So George Best goes outside to make this phone call. At which point, there's a whole bunch of cameras, so it's basically a setup. They sent the woman in there to lure George Best out, so that the paparazzi can get all of these photos of, oh look, there's George Best in the pub having a drink. And eventually, some of the the locals would start giving you know him a heads up. Say, look, there's some cameras out there. If you want to leave the other entrance, that's the good idea. And I think that's really where where you can see what that piece did to both men. For Mantle, far more. He had far more salvation. I think with Best, there wasn't really a form of salvation. You know, there was always an air of sort of hedonistic you know,ness to uh, George Bess's personal life, even close to the end. But he found a place and a purpose that allowed for a narrative arc that his death was more celebrated than mourned. It was more focusing on his ballet brilliance than his descent into addiction. However, Gascoigne in many ways revels in the adulation from the public. he, he, He spent a lot of the years of 90s in Scotland and in Italy, and he played for Middlesbrough in the Premiership. And he had long periods of injury outside of the spotlight. So it was only really... When he was on international duty for England, that the full sort of glare was on it. But then he'd miss Euro ninety two through injury. You know, as he didn't, they didn't qualify for World Cup ninety six. So really, it was only a much more smaller con. It wasn't quite as every day as it was for Best and Mantle. Because really, this adulation keeps him as Gazza. And there's always, you know, a role. There was always opportunities in stage shows, documentaries. Um, There's always the element of reflective love and sympathy throughout the country. You know, what Gaza stands for is 90s nostalgia. And it's drenched in testosterone banter, beer-soaked anecdotes, near-misses, uncomplicated machismo. And it ignores the reality, which is the broken body, the poor physical and mental health, you know, the failed punditry, you know, for ITV in the World Cup in two thousand and two, where he would sort of rock up, basically either hungover or drunk or just not in any position or having no, no research, just in no way to have made the most of this to have sort of become a pundit, you know, like George Best was able to do so. You have the disasters of two failed coaching spells. You know there was the on this stage tour you know, that he made racist comments to one of the security staff. You know there, and you have you know, numerous kind of car crash personal appearances in public. As long as Gazda is in some way marketable the failures of Paul Gascoigne's post-football life will be obscured and shrouded. You know, it's for him, it's far easier to drink a pint as Gaza than it is to be a sober Paul Gascoigne. You know, since he's retired from football the last 20 years, he hasn't done much. I mean, really to sort of conclude... In some ways, Gaza has an oversized role within English football. You know, the, the moment the tears of Turin in the semi-final, he, you know, his excellent play throughout the tournament, his, his oversized personality, it fitted the national mood perfectly. But what if England had prevailed in the penalty shootout against West Germany? The tears would have been a footnote, because it would have been framed against the final versus Argentina, the, the potential for revenge against Diego Madon, the chances to be world champions again to finally be at the, the top. And Gascoigne would have been suspended. he would have watched from the sidelines as somebody else would have been either the hero, the villain, the goat. that would have been somebody else. And yes, while he was in Italy, really it was David Platt and Des Walker who had arguably more success in, in the peninsula than the you know injury played Lazio years. You know you had Ray Wilkins, you had in the eighties Mark Haitley, you had John Charles in the sixties and fifties. He wasn't the first person to go to Italy, and he was by no means the most you know successful. You know after Lazio, he joined a Rangers team that won before he arrived, that won during his time, and won after he left. Yeah, he plays some great football. It is very watchable on YouTube. Highly recommend it, but it, but it has to be caveated that it was for a dominant tier, dominant team in a second tier league. You know, his spell at Middlesbrough had far more about boosting coverage and attendance than it did over his actual performances. You had you know Middlesbrough, who were famous when they got promoted. There was Samba Borough. You had Giannino, you had Emerson. They signed for Brizio Ravinelli on idiot money. They got relegated, two cup finals, lost both of them, and they needed a boost, and Paul Gascoigne was going to be that one. Thousands of people turned up at his you know, bought shirts, turned up at his announcement. You know It was Paul Gascoigne finally coming back to England after six years away. I uh, talked about the nil-nil game in England versus Italy, you know, in Rome in November nineteen ninety-seven. He was thirty years old, and after that, Paul Gascoigne never made another meaningful appearance in professional football. The remainder of his Premier League appearances was basically either to maintain his England place after he lost it in before the in the well before World Cup ninety-eight, or to regain it. Neither was a success. He never got back into the England squad. He didn't make 98 because of his you know, poor professionalism. And from that moment onwards, you just saw flashes. moments. you know, he had a couple of good games for Everton. But really, you were seeing the, the, the increasing specter of his demons and personal problems, you you could see it on the horizon. It was getting worse. It was get his life, world was getting more complicated, and that these issues would eventually it really engulf his life. In some ways, you can almost see that the pranks, the Gaza persona, it increasingly can be argued as evidence of of a personality almost frozen in carbon, you know, unable to move. You know, there was no growth, no depth. You know, Sober Gazza and Drunk Gazza are pretty much trying to do the same thing. You now, basically the, the Sober Gazza can headline, you know, the Gaza brand pretty well. The Drunk Gazza tries to do the same thing and you have little success. You know, all you have is pain, tabloid headlines and sad paparazzi shots. You know, I see Paul Gascon as almost being the Forrest Gump of the 90s in terms of football and in some ways in terms of culture. There's, there's nobody but him that could span you know, world in motion. You know, the... the seminal you know um, song for uh, that was England's official 1990 Italian 90 anthem you know Ness and Dorma the Pavarotti and the three tenors singing this song set against the backdrop of Italian 90 all those beautiful stadiums you know the tears of Turin you know you have Football Italia on Channel 4 you know Goal you know Football's Coming Home in 96 you know deal and Skinner, but in, in some ways, having no meaningful impact on the formation and the growth of the Premier League, the really huge bit of English, you know, football, Gazel didn't play any kind of role. You know, Best put he he almost single-handedly took Spurs to the nineteen ninety one FA Cup final, and then nearly single-handedly lost it for. You know he's brilliant. He's irrepressible, and he's also dark. And in some ways, it's no surprise that when it gets to semi-finals, that it was West Germany and then Unified Germany that thwarted Gaza and thwarted England's hopes, because Germany, West Germany in '90, no one did. Reckless, stupid fouls when they were on a yellow, like Gascoigne did. The Germans buried all of their penalties. In 1996, were, were they the most fantastic, wonderful footballing outfit? No, Germany wasn't. What they did, they didn't have the dentist chair. They didn't have the damaged plane. They scored their penalties. They just held England off. Paul Gascoigne is always fated to be an inch short of that Darren Anderton cross at Wembley in extra time. Had he just been one, two inches further along, he would have tapped that ball into the empty net. It would have been a golden goal. The game would have ended at that precise second. England would have beaten Germany 2-1. They would be going to the Euro 96 final. So 30 years on from 1966 World Cup... Euro 1996, England playing Czech Czech Republic in the final. There would have been statues to Paul Gascoigne had he done that, had he then, in the final, taken England to glory. But he doesn't. And in, in a way, we all know how this is going to end. It might be tomorrow, it might be five or six years, it might be seven years there's going to be that news report that says that Paul Gascoigne has been taken into hospital and that he's in critical condition and then a short while later the news will come through that he's passed away and it would have been too early, it would have been in just unbearably sad, sad condition. It will be a... ...broken man... ...looking years older than he should have done... ...and that despite all of the, the joy... ...and the, the genius... ...and the entertainment that he brought to us... ...and all the love that we gave back to, to Paul Gascoigne... ...that it's still so deeply troubling... ...and in deeply sorrowful... ...and I can only hope... ...against hope... That he finds some kind of peace before that tragic day. Thank you for listening.